Chapter 5 of Marooned in the Forest, The Story of a Primitive Fight for Life by Alpheus Hyatt Verrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. I Go A-Fishin'. All day long I tramped onward, following the course of the river, but frequently entering the woods and trudging through the forest for several miles to avoid impassable portions of the riverbank. Quite frequently, the shores rose in steep, rocky bluffs, between which the torrent roared and foamed, while at other times fallen trees, driftwood, and logs made progress along the shore impossible. Many a time that first day of my journey did I have cause for thankfulness that I had taken the precaution to learn means for determining the points of the compass, for the knowledge saved me many a weary mile. Late in the afternoon, I made camp at a little cove where the river cut into the woods and where a crystal brook babbled through a fern-grown ravine and gave promise of trout and frogs. My first work was to build a tiny lean-to, and in doing this I saved myself a deal of labor by using dead and fallen branches for the timbers of my shelter instead of cutting them from living trees. I soon started a fire and then walked up the brook in search of game. I had expected to find a few frogs or perhaps to obtain some trout, but presently a flock of grouse whirred up from the ferns and alighted on a low spruce a few yards away. It took me but an instant to fit an arrow to my bow and to let it fly at one of the birds. I made a clean miss, and, rather chagrined, I tried again. Once more I missed, but the stupid birds remained motionless and not at all frightened by the passing arrows. As I watched them and wondered if it would be possible to approach more closely, I remembered the beaver sinews and determined to attempt snaring the grouse. Rapidly forming a noose with one of the fine tendons, I attached it to the butt of my frog spear and cautiously crept toward the unsuspecting birds. When within reach, I slowly pushed the pole forward, and although the grouse craned their necks and moved about a little, and showed some nervousness, they remained upon their perches, and an instant later the noose was slipped over the head of the lowest, and with a quick jerk I brought him fluttering to the ground. Even then the other birds did not take flight, and three fine grouse were mine ere the others realized their danger and winged their way to safer quarters. I was greatly elated at my success and dined royally on partridge and had enough left over for my food for the next day. As I sat by my fire that evening, I thought over my life since the day when I was cast into the river, and, much to my surprise, I found it difficult to fix the days and the sequence of events in my mind. Then, for the first time, I realized that if I was to keep account of time, I must devise some means of recording the days. My first idea was to cut notches in a stick, one for each day, but I at once gave this up as impracticable, for I foresaw that the numerous notches representing the days I had already passed in the woods would prove confusing, and that this method would merely enable me to tell how many days had passed and would fail to give me an idea of the day of the week or the month. Moreover, to carry sticks for this purpose would be a nuisance, and after some time I decided to make a rude calendar by means of beaver tendons. My scheme was very simple and consisted of using two tendons, one for the weekdays and the other for the months. Each day I would tie a knot in the week string, and when the seventh day was reached, I would tie a large knot. Then when the days made up a month, I would tie a knot in the month string. To think was to act, and selecting a smooth, strong tendon, I tied knots to represent the seven days I had already been in the forest, with the last knot double the size of the others. And as the canoe had been wrecked on Wednesday, the 2nd of August, I tied nine knots in my month string, which gave Wednesday as the day of the week, and the ninth day of the month as the correct date. I could easily remember the month itself, and I had not the least expectation of being in the wilderness long enough to require a means of keeping track of future months. But as it turned out, many a month's string was tied into knots ere I came to my journey's end. For several days I tramped onward without adventure or incident, 
save that I fared ill for meat and was obliged to depend almost entirely upon the mussels in the river and the fungus in the woods. Over and over again I gave thanks to the rabbit which had first led me to the supply of food, for without the fungus I would have gone to bed hungry on many a night. Several times I saw hares, and once or twice I flushed partridges. I repeatedly tried to kill these creatures with my bow and arrows, but I failed each time. Moreover, the grouse seemed wild and suspicious, and I could not approach closely enough to snare them, while the brooks I passed, although alive with trout, had no deep pools or isolated basins which I could bail out to secure the fish. Anxious as I was to get out of the woods without delay, my longing for better food finally overcame my impatience, and I decided to make a halt for a day and endeavor to trap or snare some sort of game. Accordingly, I made camp at midday and spent the afternoon preparing twitch-ups and deadfalls. It was while setting one of the latter that an accident gave me an idea which proved of the utmost value and made my lot far easier. Bending over and endeavoring to lift a log, my belt parted, and to my chagrin I discovered that the stitches which held the buckle had ripped out. Holding it in my hand and thinking of a way of lashing it to the leather again, it suddenly occurred to me that in this bit of metal I had the means of fashioning a fish hook. The buckle was a fairly large one with a strong, sharp tongue, and one end of this was already formed in an eye. All that was necessary was to detach the tongue from the buckle frame and bend it into a hooked form. Instantly, the deadfall was forgotten, and I set to work hammering the buckle with stones and bending it back and forth in order to remove the tongue. The amount of labor which was required to accomplish this simple matter is almost incredible. My fingers were bruised and torn, my hands were cramped, and my arms ached ere the buckle frame finally parted and the tongue was free. Even more difficult was the task of bending this, for my only tools were the water-worn pebbles. Time and again the bit of metal slipped, and I yelled with pain as my crude stone hammer struck my fingertips. At last I hit upon the plan of heating it and placed the tongue amid the hot coals of my fire. While it was heating, I cudgeled my brains to devise some method of holding the hot metal while bending it, and at last hit upon what I considered a very clever scheme indeed. With my knife, I cut a notch in a piece of green wood, and in the center of this dugout, with great labor, a little depression at right angles to the notch. The metal was now red hot, and carefully lifting it with a green stick, I laid it in the notch with its center above the hollow. Then a chip of stone, which I had already selected, was placed against the steel, and with a rock as a hammer, I drove down upon the metal until it bent into the recess below and took its shape. The steel bent so readily when hot, and the whole operation was so simple, that I mentally called myself a fool for spending so much time in mashing my fingers trying to bend the metal when cold by means of stones. As soon as the buckle tongue was bent, I threw water upon it to cool it and examined the results of my ingenuity with the greatest pride. Undoubtedly, it was a hook, but doubts assailed me as to its value for catching fish, for it was large, coarse, and clumsy, and was scarcely better than an enormous bent pin. However, I had seen trout caught with bent pins, and the only way to prove whether or not my trouble had been for naught was to test the hook. It required but a short time to gather a quantity of fine roots and tie these together in a line, but I found it a harder matter to secure a root fine and strong enough to pass through the eye of my hook which had been squeezed out of shape while bending it. Again, the useful beaver tendons came into mind, and with one of these I readily attached the crude hook to my line. Equipped with this primitive tackle and with worms, which I found beneath the stones, for bait, I hurried to the neighboring stream and dropped the baited hook into a shaded deep pool among the rocks. Hardly had the hook touched water before a silvery body flashed, 
and by the sharp, hard tug on the line, I knew I had hooked a trout. Fearful, lest my captive should slip from the barbless hook, and tingling with excitement, I pulled in the line, but I was doomed to disappointment. Scarcely had his flashing body reached the surface of the water when, with a flap of his tail, the trout leaped into the air, shook himself free, and dropped back into the pool while I stood gazing stupidly at the empty hook dangling at the end of the line. I was filled with bitter disappointment, for I had been confident that the fish was firmly hooked, and for several moments I could not overcome my chagrin at the loss of the fine trout. However, I had learned patience and perseverance, and again baiting the hook, I tried my luck once more. Again came the sharp tug at the line as a fish took the bait, and this time, instead of pulling slowly on the line, I gave a quick, hard jerk, and to my intense joy saw the flashy trout flung from the pool and landed safely upon the mossy bank. Now that I had learned the trick, I found little difficulty in securing several more trout, and while one out of every two or three managed to escape, yet I had plenty of fish for my meal by the time I had stopped. With a supply of trout thus assured, I had no need to worry over my food in the future, but I was terribly afraid of breaking my line and losing the precious hook, and to avoid all chance of this, I spent the remaining hours of daylight in carefully braiding a better line from fine selected hemlock roots. My thoughts were so fully occupied with fishing that I almost forgot about the traps and snares I had set, and I was on the point of again setting out on my tramp when I remembered them. One deadfall had been sprung and contained a tiny ground squirrel, but a skunk or fisher cat had visited it before me, and only a few bones and a little fur of the chipmunk remained in the trap. My twitch-ups were far more successful, and in one I found a fine, fat hare, and in another a red squirrel. These I decided to use for my midday meal, and, well pleased with my prowess as a trapper and fisherman, I continued on my way. For some time I made good progress, but soon the country grew rough and more mountainous, while the river flowed for long distances between rocky, precipitous banks which compelled me to make my way through the forest. Here it was also difficult traveling, for fallen trees were scattered everywhere. The ground was rocky and full of holes and clefts, and I was compelled to go far out of my way in order to avoid such obstructions. So hard was the way that I longed again to be able to follow the shores of the river and made frequent trips to the edge of the bank, hoping each time to find the bluffs were passed and that I could again travel in the open beside the stream. On one such occasion, I was standing at the verge of a high, steep bank with the river tumbling and roaring in masses of foam among the jagged rocks far below. Suddenly, I felt the earth give way beneath me, and with a cry of terror, I clutched frantically at the bushes about me. With a roar and rumble, a great slice of the bank fell crashing down to the river. The branch which I had seized snapped. I felt myself slipping to certain death, and the next instant found myself poised in midair above the precipice. Although the branch had snapped off, it still supported me, and sick with fear and with pounding heart, I drew myself hand over hand up the edge of the bank and fell panting on the earth. Terribly shaken and helplessly weak from the shock, I lay trembling upon the ground, for I had missed death or terrible injuries by a hair's breadth. I had been saved as by a miracle, and I breathed a prayer of thanks that Providence had guided my hand to grasp a branch which was strong enough to withstand the terrific strain of my falling body. Then, having in a measure regained my breath and self-control, and curious to see the sapling which had saved my life, I rose unsteadily to my feet and cautiously approached the precipitous bank. Lying prone on my stomach, I peered over the edge and a wave of faintness swept over me as I gazed down at the tumbling rapids and jagged black rock at the foot of the sheer decline. Close at hand was the slender growth which had proved my salvation. 
bent, bruised, and drooping from my struggles, but still intact. It was scarcely as large as my finger. Filled with amazement that such a tiny bush could have supported me, I examined it with minute care. The wood was cracked and broken in a dozen spots. The bark was split and separated from the wood, but it was still as tough as a leather thong, flexible as whalebone, and fibrous as a rope. Carefully cutting the branch, I withdrew to a point of safety to investigate its marvelous strength. Twist it, bend it, or pull it as I would, I could make no impression upon it, and it came at once to my mind that here, indeed, was a natural rope of immense strength, which would be of inestimable value to me. I also discovered that the strength was all in the bark, and by stripping off slender pieces, I found that with them I could form cords, threads, and lines equal to hempen strands. Once again, an accident had led to a valuable discovery, and as the shrub was abundant everywhere along the river's bank, I knew that I now possessed an inexhaustible supply of lines and ropes which I could use for numberless purposes. Not till long afterward did I learn that this was moose wood, that its properties were known to every woodsman, hunter, and trapper of the wilderness, and that to the Indians it served every purpose of string and rope and was in constant use a thousand and one ways. I was still so upset by my terrible experience that I abandoned any idea of proceeding farther that day and made a camp a short distance away beside a little mountain stream. Fascinated by the tough and flexible character of the moosewood bark, I spent hours braiding and twisting it into cords of various sizes, and it was so far superior to the hemlock root that I made a new and better bowstring and a new fish line from the material. Then, having secured a good rest and having quite recovered from my fright and shock, I tried my hand at fishing. It took me but a short time to catch a number of trout, as they were abundant in the brook, and I had now learned the knack of jerking them from the water so quickly that they could not flap loose from the hook. The next morning I resumed my tramp, and for five days walked steadily onward without any incident worth of record. With every mile the river increased in width, sandbars and rocky islets rose in its midst, the current became less swift, and by the sixth day the stream stretched in a broad, sluggish expanse of silver a quarter of a mile wide. Late in the forenoon of the seventh day, I toiled up the slope of a low ridge, and amid the tree trunks on its summit I saw the bright sky glimmering through the forest ahead. My heart leaped with joy at the sight, for I knew that the wilderness must be nearly at an end, that open country must be just beyond, and that my journey must be nearly over. Tired as I was, I hurried onward, thrilled to think that my tramp would soon be finished, that but a few hundred yards more and I would break from the woods and look upon open fields, a clearing, or some similar scene of the outposts of civilization, and that ere nightfall I would be talking with my fellow men. Forgetting my weary, blistered feet, forgetting that my clothes were torn and ragged, forgetting the hardships I had suffered, I pushed rapidly forward, my eyes fixed upon the sunlit sky among the trees to the south, and all unmindful of the fallen branches, the thick underbrush, and the brambles that beset my path. Already the character of the woods had changed. Among the somber evergreens, deciduous trees grew thickly. Open, brush-filled glades were here and there. Patches of blueberry bushes grew in the hollows beneath the trees, and on every hand were indications that I was approaching the verge of the forest. A few moments more, and between the tree trunks I caught a glimpse of light, broken by breeze-swayed golden leaves, and with a glad cry I broke into a run and dashed forward. I crashed through the last small growth, burst forth into glorious sun-filled open air, and the next instant sank, exhausted and bitterly disappointed, to the earth. End of chapter 5